you keep your Bibles open there at that passage we just read, John 15, looking particularly this morning at verses 1 to 7, verses 1 to 7, and considering Jesus' words, I am the true vine, I am the true vine. Who or what are you most attached to in life? Who or what do you feel most dependent upon? Is there someone or something that if it was taken away from you, you're not sure how you would cope. Many of us, of course, are blessed with close family, with loved ones that we care for greatly and who care for us. And yet, sadly, we do inevitably lose our loved ones. <clears throat> Perhaps you're someone who really loves your work. You take great satisfaction from your work. And yet, there will come a day when you must leave the office or the classroom or the garage for the last time. And work will not be the huge part of your life that it was for so many years. Increasingly today, we find ourselves attached, quite literally, to technology. And some of us can be guilty at times of acting as though our phones were stuck to our hands with glue. Increasingly, some people, particularly children and young people, can't cope without their phones. They get twitchy and nervous and anxious if they don't have their phones to their hands. In another way, of course, we're attached, uh, more importantly, hopefully, we're attached to our beliefs and our convictions. Maybe we're religious, maybe we aren't, but we all have beliefs, uh, religious or, other, or otherwise, that shape how we look at the world and how we understand ourselves and our place and our purpose in the world. What are we attached to? Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples an important lesson about who he is by saying, I am. A title, of course, that was used by God to describe himself when he called Moses uh, to lead the exodus in, uh, out, of, out of Egypt. Uh, but not only do these statements teach us that Jesus is both God and man, they also teach us about our relationship with Jesus. And this weekend, we're looking at maybe the most vivid of all these I am sayings of Jesus. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Couldn't be a simpler picture, could it? Uh, boys and girls in church this morning, you understand this, don't you? Uh, even if you look at the, uh, the picture in your bulletin today, you can see a picture of the grapes there growing on the vine. Uh, and boys and girls, you understand that the branches of the tree, they have to be attached to the trunk of the tree. Otherwise, they're dead. They're, there's no life in them. Uh, the leaves on a branch that have been cut off will soon wither up and die. If there is to be life in the branch, boys and girls, you know it has to be attached to the rest of the tree. It has to be attached to the trunk. And that's just like those grapes in your picture there in the bulletin today. They, they're growing on a, on a branch, and that branch has to be attached to the vine. And there were vines all over the place in the land of Israel in the days of Jesus. This was what everybody had growing in their back garden. Some people would have huge vineyards full of grapes. Other people maybe just uh, a small vine or two uh, somewhere on their property. And this is the picture that Jesus uses. He says, if you're to have true life within you, then you need to be attached to him. He is the vine. We are the branches. 
And so that's the real question for you this morning. Are you attached to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? You and I can only have life, real life, eternal life, if we are attached to Jesus. And the Lord's table, of course, is a beautiful reminder for for those of us who are Christians of our union with Christ, of our attachment. And attachment hardly seems the a strong enough word, but we're united to Christ. That's the picture. That's the truth that we celebrate through the pictures, uh, the signs and seals of the Lord's table. If you're not a Christian this morning, it's something for you to consider carefully and deeply. Is there anything or anyone that I am more attached to than the Lord Jesus Christ? And should I not be attached to the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to think about two aspects of this statement of Jesus here now. We'll, we'll consider another briefly when we come to the table. Uh, but two, two things to consider about this statement that Jesus makes. Uh, first of all, it's a controversial statement. It's a controversial statement when he says, I am the true vine. Jesus, of course, is only speaking here to his 11 disciples. He's, he's not saying this out in public where Lots of people could disagree with him or take issue with him if they, if they chose to. But even so, even in this private setting with his 11, probably at this point, disciples, um, they would have known, the disciples would have known that this is a controversial statement that Jesus is making. This is not something that everybody agrees with who has met Jesus. For almost the whole of Jesus' three-year ministry, he was hounded by the Jewish religious leaders who absolutely did not believe that he was the true vine, that he was the true and better Israel, that he was the Messiah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees completely rejected that. And those men carried authority. They, they, they were just, you know, people that you just kind of dismissed their opinion. You could take it or leave it. It's going to be hard for us to appreciate in a culture that really doesn't put much, uh, give much respect to religious authority anymore at all. Uh, but these men carried authority. They were the, the influencers and the, the culture makers and leaders, at least in the Jewish uh, society of their day. And they had rejected Jesus. These men took meticulous care, at least they claimed to, uh, over upholding the laws of Moses from the Old Testament. In fact, the Pharisees, of course, had added all sorts of their own laws on top of the laws of the Old Testament, sort of as a buffer so that you couldn't even get close enough to break the laws of the Old Testament. And really the message of the Pharisees and scribes, whether they intended it this way or not, was attach yourselves to us, follow our rules, live the way we do, accept our teaching, and that's the right way to live. And along comes Jesus of Nazareth and calls them hypocrites, calls these men blind guides, Matthew 23. says they've placed heavy burdens on the people that they had no right to place upon them at all. And Jesus says, don't go the way of these hypocrites and these blind guides, these false teachers. I am the true vine. But it wasn't just the Pharisees or the Sadducees that people thought they should maybe attach themselves to in Jesus' day. Generally speaking, the Jews in Jesus' day hoped for a return of a glorious kingdom, like the kingdom of David or the kingdom of Solomon. I mentioned this in the last couple of weeks as we get into the Gospel of Matthew. 
But most of the Jewish people in that time, they expected a, a Messiah, a king to come who was a military champion. They wanted to see their nation become powerful and respected and wealthy again. As I mentioned on Friday night, the grapevine was something like a national symbol for Israel. It's a bit like the Irish shamrock or the Scottish thistle. And yet each time that God referred to Israel as a vine in the Old Testament, he was disappointed with them. This nation that the Jews were so keen to see reestablished and powerful and wealthy again, God had spoken in judgment about it. Jeremiah 2.21, I planted you, that's the nation of Israel and Judah, I planted you as a choice vine. How then did you bear wild fruit? And the word there for wild really means stinking, bad, awful fruit. And so the Jewish people, friends, they were misguided also to attach themselves to notions of nationalism. Their nation had failed. Their nation was what, not what God had called them to be. And their salvation did not lie simply in their nation overcoming the Romans again. And so instead of these alternatives, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And the word for true there is emphasized in the original language. That the word means, as we would say, that someone or something is the genuine article. Maybe you've come across an old antique in your attic. Uh, maybe there's, you, you, you inherit some stuff from uh, loved ones who have passed on. And you look at something, you think, well, that might be worth a bit of money. Uh, and so you go to get it appraised. And the expert will look for certain marks, certain signs that something is genuine. That it's not just a copy or a forgery or whatever it might be. It's not just an imitation. There needs to be signs of it being genuine. Jesus here is saying, I am the genuine, true, real vine. There are people that you could attach yourselves to, but they will disappoint you. There are others that might claim to be all that you need. I am all that you need. There are those who doubt or question whether I am the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. It was controversial. And it took faith to believe it because in Jesus' three-year public ministry, he hadn't attracted a lot of devoted followers. In the early days, yes, the crowds followed him, but why were they following him? Jesus said to them on one occasion, you have followed me because of the signs that I'm doing, because of the miracles that I'm doing, because you ate your fill of the loaves when he, when he fed 5,000 people. They just wanted to see more miracles, more great stuff happening. And when Jesus refused to simply be their puppet or be their entertainer, many of them turned back and turned away. They didn't want to be attached to Jesus when they heard from him what kind of Messiah he really was. And so the disciples here are hearing a controversial statement and a statement in which they need to place their trust. I am the true vine. It's me that you need to be attached to. It's it's me that you need to stick to and stick with. And of course, friends, Jesus' statement is no less controversial today, is it? There are still plenty of competing ideas and beliefs that distract people 
from following Jesus, other, other beliefs or people or ideas that they would attach themselves to instead. <clears throat> For several years, uh, the new atheist movement with people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, they, they attracted people. People, were attached them, people attached themselves to these developments of Darwinian notions of evolution and the absolute redundancy of belief in God, or so these men claimed. And they, and they gained a great following and likely still do of many who would go along with their uh, beliefs and their suggestions. But many of, their, many of the implications of what people like Dawkins and Harris and others claimed are now being rejected, even by people who wouldn't call themselves Bible-believing Christians. But instead, there's this sort of individual spirituality taking its place where people would absolutely affirm a belief in some form of God or some form of, of moral framework by which they, a higher being has provided for them, by which they need to organize their lives. But it all tends to be very self-serving. It's essentially a form of works righteousness, rebranded. I live by certain moral codes. I abide by certain philosophic principles. But it's so that I can be my best self or make a valuable contribution to society. Or be a good person. Of course, many people still attach themselves to some form of political nationalism, as the Jews, many of the Jews in Jesus' day, were tempted to do. And in the most extreme cases, we see that that, that undiluted, extreme, uncompromising attachment to national identity it often leads to conflict. As we see in the Middle East today, as we're well aware of in the history of our own province. Or as we mentioned earlier, people attach themselves to their technology, to their virtual world, because it's so much more exciting than real life. And so we have all the concerns around the rise of artificial intelligence and what that could lead to and where it's going to leave human relationships. Point is, though, friends, you can attach yourselves to any of these ideas, any of these kinds of causes and interests and celebrities and beliefs, and you won't get any bother for it. People will say, you do you. You live your life. And as long as you're not doing me any harm, well, it doesn't matter what you've attached yourself to. But declare your attachment to Jesus Christ. Declare the exclusive power and authority of Jesus Christ as the true vine, the Lord and Savior, the King of Kings. And sooner or later we'll see how controversial that is. Moves are still afoot to bring so-called conversion therapy bans onto the statute books in the United Kingdom. Because attachment to Jesus, if it means urging people to let go of certain sexual practices or identities, it's controversial. It's not always welcome. Some of you will be aware of the hate speech bill that's being proposed in the Irish Republic, which, among other things, in some scenarios could land you uh, with a fine or even imprisonment simply for passing on a Bible. If you pass it on in the context of telling someone that their lifestyle maybe needs to change, or here are my beliefs and uh, this is what I believe uh, in, uh, in, in opposition to what you believe. Attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ is controversial. It's controversial to believe that he is the true vine. Be okay to say he is a vine. You know, Jesus works for you and that's great. 
same way Islam might work for someone else or uh, wellness and physical improvement or other beliefs might work for other people or a high level of self-esteem can work for you. But to suggest that he and he alone is the true vine, the exclusive vine, is controversial. <coughs> it was controversial for his disciples back then, and it's still controversial for us today. But Jesus is reassuring us here. He's saying, don't worry, don't be put off by the counterclaims of the world. I am the true vine. I know it's costly. <coughs> I know it's controversial. But it's the truth. So a controversial statement from Jesus. But secondly, a reassuring statement from Jesus. This is wonderfully reassuring. If you are a believer here this morning, to hear Jesus say again, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And it's reassuring in at least three different ways. It's reassuring, first of all, for our persecution. It's reassuring, reassuring for our persecution. I've mentioned already that Jesus himself and his followers received hatred from the Jewish mainstream uh, during his public ministry. But of course, as he speaks these words in John 15, far worse was still to come. <coughs> in just a few hours, Jesus will be taken to the cross he will be sentenced to crucifixion. He will die the most shameful, excruciating, and that's where the word excruciating comes from. It comes from the word crucifixion. The most excruciating, horrendous death possible. And although Jesus had already told his disciples that this would happen, and that he will rise from the dead after it happens, the disciples are going to abandon Jesus the moment that he's arrested, because they think to themselves, well, they're in a panic, of course. They're not thinking at all at that point. But, but humanly speaking, they're thinking, well, what good can come from this kind of persecution? But Jesus really is the true vine. And in the weakness and shame and dread of the cross, in the midst of that persecution, that's where and how he wins the victory over Satan and sin and death. That's where and how he ensures that our sins are dealt with once and for all. See, friends, God chooses to use what the world persecutes, what the world calls weak and despised. He chooses to use it and to bring life and goodness and grace from it. Remember earlier this year, we looked at the life of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, old, past it, and through them, God brings a son and through him, the chosen nation of Israel, and through that nation, the Messiah. You think of David, young, uneducated, hung around with sheep, of no interest to anyone. God turns him into a king. Although first, David had to go through maybe a decade's worth of persecution from King Saul. Think of Mary and Joseph, just a young couple, most likely. Certain, certainly Mary was most likely a, only a teenager. A very young girl. Likely unable to read. Likely unable to earn a wage. God makes her the mother of the child who will be the saviour of the world. And yet, as we saw last week, Mary and Joseph had to go through 
in a sense, a measure of persecution. Had to flee to Egypt. And then Jesus himself, of course, the supreme example, hated, rejected, despised, executed. But God raised him from the dead. And through his sacrifice, the world has salvation. Point is, friends, if we are truly attached to Christ, some form of hardship, some form of persecution is likely to come. Why do we so quickly doubt the goodness of God when we're made to feel weak and despised and unimportant by this world? That's exactly what Jesus experienced. It's exactly what his followers experienced. The true vine was persecuted to death. The branches of the vine will be persecuted too. But we can be reassured that he is the true vine, that he is that life-giving vine, that he is a resurrection-giving vine. And that if we belong to him, no amount of persecution will be able to separate us from him. So reassurance for our persecution. Also reassurance for our pruning. Reassurance for our pruning. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, that's the Father. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Uh, grapevine owners in Israel carried out pruning twice every year, and, and maybe some of you uh, do as well if you're into your gardening. But in the spring, the, the vine dressers, they would cut back some of the blossoming branches, even the branches that had flowers on them. Uh, some, sometimes, as you know, if, if you like your gardening, even healthy twigs and flowers need to be cut away. Uh, they might look very nice, but they need to have some of that foliage, some of that flowering cut away because there's no fruit yet. And so the, the plant's energies need to be redirected into producing fruit rather than just the appearance of fruit. And that's the goal, Jesus says, of pruning. He says that it's so that they'll produce more fruit. And then there was the pruning in the autumn at the end of the season. And at that point, any branches that had failed to produce fruit at all were cut away completely and burned up in the fire. And this is a picture of how God deals with those who would profess, who would claim attachment to God the Son. You notice what Jesus says, verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Friends, it's the healthy branches, the fruitful branches, that will sometimes feel the knife plunging into them. They will have what seem to be good, promising, attractive things cut away from them. There is no Christian, not a single genuine believer in Jesus Christ, who does not go through pruning. And sometimes we don't understand it. It's one of the hardest things sometimes uh, about, for, for a pastor when, when someone will say, why is this happening? How could this possibly work out for the best. Where's the good in this? And sometimes a pastor, an elder has to say, I don't know. I know that God is good. I know that he can do good through any circumstance, but I, I don't know what he's doing, what exactly he's doing right now. And we might never know. We don't know why something good like our physical health is perhaps cut away. We don't know why something enjoyable like a special relationship with someone is cut away from us. We don't know why a job or a home or 
a reputation that we did nothing to, to ruin is cut away from us. We wish these things weren't cut away from us. We wish we could hang on to it all. But here's the promise, friends. The Father prunes so that we would bear more fruit. When God cuts something or someone out of your life, He is your best interests at heart. Maybe He's removing something that could lead you into compromising sin. Maybe he's removing an obstacle to your growth as a Christian. Maybe he is simply removing something that was perfectly good. There was nothing wrong with it or with that person. But he knows that you'll be more fruitful without it. Or that you will grow in faith without it. A knife in the hand of a murderer is a very dangerous thing. Terrible damage could be done with it. A knife in the hand of a surgeon is a wonderful thing. Life can flourish because of it. So, so when you experience pruning, not if, but when, consider how might my heavenly Father be looking for more fruit? Is there something that has held me back from becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there some sin in my life that I am making excuses for, blaming other people for, just hanging on to? Is there something more I could be doing to play my part in the kingdom of God? The writer to the Hebrews says, at the time all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so if you belong to Christ, he says, you will be pruned. But it will be for your good, and it will be for God's glory, and it will be for the purpose of more fruitfulness in your life. Reassurance for our persecution, reassurance for our pruning. And the last thing to notice is that this statement of Jesus, it's reassurance for uh, what I'll call productivity, to keep, keep it all to the letter P. Reassurance for our productivity. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you look at verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In the Western world today, there is a huge emphasis on productivity, not just the Western world. Uh, business, business leaders want to know what they should do in the workplace to maximize efficiency, to maximize productivity, to maximize profit. Uh, there was a guy in my year at school, he and his brothers uh, started a business together that has made them millionaires. Uh, but they are extremely driven people. Uh, they will just call up some of the most successful business leaders. My, my brother was talking, heard about this recently. He was telling me they just called up one of the most successful businessmen, I think it was in Japan, and just said, would you speak to us for 20 minutes? We'd just love to hear about how you've got to where you are, how you've made your millions. And, and, and this guy sat down with them, talked with them, uh, gave them a few tips. They recently told their employees that they have to make at least one change every day in their workspace to make them more efficient could be rearranging the pencils and uh, whatever else on their desk, could be rearranging their keyboard or their mouse so that they're not having to move as much. Whatever it is, they have to make one change every day 
so that they'll be more efficient. And of course, all of us should want to work hard and do the best we can at whatever work we, what we do. But did you hear what Jesus said? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the truth. Unless you're in Jesus Christ, unless your sins are forgiven and you have assurance of salvation in him, nothing that you do in this life has eternal significance. Nothing. You can educate yourself for as long as you like and get more letters after your name than there are in your name. But the degrees will be left hanging on the wall when you die. You can work and work and work, but where will you be when the work is done in eternity? This was the conclusion of King Solomon who worked harder than anyone, who was better read than anyone, who enjoyed more pleasure than anyone. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after, the, after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's very easy to be influenced by the world's standards of what is worthwhile, of what is worth giving our life, our time, our attention to. Of what a productive life looks like. And the world would scoff at some of the priorities that Christian men and women might have. The woman who chooses to work less outside the home, for example, in the years when her children are small because she wants to spend more time with them to be training them up in her home. The world would perhaps say, well, that's not very productive for the economy, for the national economy. The world might look at a young person who chooses to spend a few weeks of their summer volunteering at a Christian camp or mission or teaching little children Bible stories, talking to people out on the street, offering them uh, a Christianity Explored course or a free Bible. No financial benefit whatsoever for that young person. And the world would probably say, well, what a waste of time. And the world might look at your schedule this week. Prayer meeting on Wednesday night, church twice on the Lord's Day, even on a Friday night, ahead of a pre-communion service, and the world would say, well, is that really the best use of your time? Is that not overkill? Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There are all kinds of priorities that the Christian will have in this culture in which we live. There are not priorities for the world around us, but which, eternally speaking, are the most productive priorities that we could have. Remember that as you prepare your Sabbath school lessons, those of you who are teaching Sabbath school. Remember that, elders, as you pray each day for the members of this church. Remember that, parents, and uh, 101 little lessons, life lessons that you try to give to your children each week. And uh, you wonder sometimes how much are they understanding, how much are they remembering. Remember that as you take time to read the scriptures each day and to pray to the Lord. If you're a Christian, if your chief aim in life is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the things you do give yourself to, the sacrifices you make, the opportunities you take to share the gospel or to bring yourself under the sound of the word of God, it will all count long into eternity when the things that this world so highly values, many of them will be gone. 
If you're not attached to Jesus Christ today, you cannot please God in any way whatsoever. Your life is a vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how good you think you are, your best efforts are stained with your sin. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he warns about what happens to those branches that are not attached to him, that they go into the fire and they are burned. Are you attached to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? If you are, you can be reassured this morning that everything you do matters greatly and counts into eternity. And you will get the help you need to do it from Jesus himself. It's like the branch with life flowing into it from the vine. So here are the words for us to consider as we come to the Lord's table today. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. It's a controversial statement. There is no one else through whom we can come to God. There is no way but this way. But it's a reassuring statement. It's reassuring for our pruning, for our productivity, and for our persecution. Jesus is the true vine. Are you attached to him? Amen.